The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, December 18th, 2022. That's not a conversation killer at all. I totally want to talk about the existential pain of living with the consciousness of death. Rios! Oh, thank God. Hey everybody, this is your host, Peter, with the 24th Digest of the second volume, covering Monday, December 12th through Friday, December 16th, 2022. Monday Musings, A Need to Speak Things into Existence, or rather, Sing. Could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock. Open the latch, something's coming, don't know when, but it's soon. Catch the moon, one-handed catch, around the corner, or whistling down the river, come on, deliver. these letters is addressed to Santa Claus. The post office has delivered them. Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. Top 5 Tuesday. The top five Christmas movies I haven't seen. How's that for a little bit of a bait and switch? So I posted this on Twitter, and I, uh, tweeted out that I, I wondered if this was the year that I would see, for the first time, uh, a few movies that have become Christmas standards uh, or Christmas traditions for a lot of people. Um, these I, I just posted a few on Twitter, and then I thought, oh, 
this could actually make for, uh, you know, a silly segment here as we, you know, get closer and closer to the holidays. So here you go, just the top five Christmas movies that I have yet to see. I can't really talk about them because I haven't seen them, so I'm just going to list them and maybe maybe try to explain why I haven't seen them. So, uh, number five, I just threw this one on here because I had to round out the list and I was having trouble with uh, the fifth selection, but this one seems like, you know, it's not mega popular, but it is something that people have seen and people remember. So, number five on the list of Christmas movies I haven't seen, The Santa Claus with uh, Tim Allen, and I guess there's been a couple sequels, I don't know, um, but, you know, I've never seen it. I'm not the biggest fan of Tim Allen, so that's probably why, or maybe it just came out at a time when, uh, you know, I wasn't young enough to, to enjoy it or appreciate it. Number four, The Polar Express. Another movie I just, for some reason, missed uh, along the way. I remember at the time people being very excited about it because of the the nature of how they made the movie, I guess. And, um, you know, again, is it a major Christmas movie? I don't know, but I've never seen it. All right. So now these top three, they are pretty big when when people want to list their favorite Christmas movie. So here we go. The third selection on my top five, Elf. I have not seen Elf. Again, I am not the biggest fan of Will Farrell, and uh, I probably actively skipped this movie because of it, but it is a movie people really, really like. And now, this Christmas season, we have Spirited, I guess it's called, and I do kind of want to see that because there is some dancing, there's some tap dancing in it, so I feel like, okay, maybe I should probably see that one. At the number two spot, if you recognized the intro clip, Miracle on 34th Street. The original, the remake, nope, I have not seen, um, I have not seen any of them. Probably the only thing I, I remember seeing, and this is only just recently, like within the last year, is the scene with Santa Claus and the deaf girl in the remake, as well as in the original, the the Santa Claus speaking to the Dutch girl, you know. So I have seen those scenes, but I have not seen the entirety of that movie. And in the number one spot, get ready, I know it's a shocker. Some people will, you know, probably be, be really floored by this. Other people will be like, eh, you know, you're not missing much. I have not seen... It's a Wonderful Life. Let that sink in. (laughs) So I had a few reactions on Twitter because of this post, and uh, a couple people chimed in. So on It's a Wonderful Life, Chris Lydon says, one of the most depressing films ever. I love it. Chuck Coletta says, you can also watch the 1977 TV version with the genders reversed. Marlo Thomas in the Jimmy Stewart role, plus Orson Welles, Cloris Leachman, and Wayne Rogers. And Alejandro Bazon says, I just recently saw it, and it's really good. Elf is good, too. On Miracle on 34th Street, Chris Beckett says, The original is unassailable and magical. 
Michael Bailey agrees and says that it is worth watching. Daryl Taylor says to watch Bad Santa instead, another movie I haven't seen. And Hilo Greg says, stream Jingle Bell Rocks, a surprisingly heartfelt documentary about Christmas music and the oddballs like me who love it. So there you go, my top five Christmas movies I haven't seen. I don't know if I'm going to rectify that this Christmas season, but uh, if you are in the same boat, let me know. Or if you have your own personal Christmas favorites, Um, that you think everybody should see, let me know that too. Danger Street is a prestige TV series in comic book form. DC put out a trade called First Issue Specials, which was a thing that happened in the mid-70s. They made 13 of these issues. Each one is a different, somewhat brand new DC concept and it's the weirdest stuff DC ever made. And I was like, what if all these people existed in the same world? I came up with this huge story that involved all of them, from the Green Team, to the Dingbats of Danger Street, to Lady Cop, to the Creeper. We can make this into something huge and big and epic. Jorge and I have worked together on Batman. We worked together on Rorschach, and so this is sort of our third journey out. This is a book that doesn't live without Jorge Fornes. Dealing with 20 plus characters who are all doing different things. Each of them needs to be sort of modernized, but also classic at the same time. It starts off, it gets you calm, and then by the end of the issue one, it like punches you in the gut. Wednesday Night Fever, some comic book reviews, some comic book recommendations here for the week of December 14th. So I read two books for this week, starting with Blade Vampire Nation, which was released in on uh, November 16th. And I did recommend it back, back then, um, partly because of the premise and also the creative team. So we have Mark Russell as writer, Dave Wachter, or Dave Wachter on art, D. Kniff on colors, Corey Pettit letters, and the cover by Valerio Giangiordano and Chris O'Halloran. And the premise is, it's basically Dracula has a new kingdom that was established in Avengers, and it is full of vampires, and it just so happens to be located in and around Chernobyl. And we have Blade, who is acting sheriff of this vampire nation for this particular one shot there is an assassination attempt and that threatens to unravel the fledgling country and spread chaos but is getting rid of a nation full of bloodsuckers really all that bad of an idea blade himself isn't too sure and because of this assassination um, blade is hired by dracula himself to investigate and that's what kicks us off into this one shot. Mostly I was intrigued with the setting and I also was intrigued by the creative team, certainly Dave Wachter on art, but also Mark Russell, um, you know, who can get kind of um, political, if you, you know, lack of a better word, um, or can really try to approach stories from that kind of like political theme, but not in a shove it in your face kind of way, like in a way that just really engages and really is a good voice for representation and a good voice for voices that we don't really hear too often. 
so there's something to be said about Mark Russell uh, toying and playing with the geopolitical structure or whatever of a, of a nation of vampires, right? With Blade as the law enforcement, if you will. So those things, you know, I was like, okay, let me read it. So I read it. Um, it doesn't go quite as deep as I thought it would. It really is pretty much just a... Uh, an investigative book. It's a procedural book. You know, we witnessed the assassination. They were clearly going after Dracula, but he managed to put somebody else, somebody else on his council in a coffin. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, he tricked them into killing that person instead of himself. Then he hires Blade. Blaze, Blade goes and tries to figure out, you know, who was behind it, who paid the mercenaries, if you follow the money. That leads to um, a vampire who has been long-lived and who doesn't want to live under Dracula's regime and wants to be, well, she referred to herself as a free-range vampire. Um, so she was the one who was behind it, and there were some others, and then uh, it wraps up with Blade and Dracula meeting again and Blade figuring out, oh, you know, Dracula also was kind of in on the attack because he was the one who tipped this mercenary group off to the information of where the coffin would be that was supposed to be his coffin, you know. And it's really just a way for him to um, make sure his enemies stay in line, you know, if if they figure out that uh, they could be killed at any moment. So um, there are some interesting parts here and there. Uh, the artwork was was decent, was fine, and um, I read it. And after I read it, I thought, you know, this is a really interesting part of the Marvel Universe, a corner of the Marvel Universe that could be very subtle, could be on the underground, could be in the shadows. Um, are they really going to play with it? That's the question. Now, apparently, Blade's story continues in All Out Avengers number three. I don't really see myself reading that. I also don't know, you know, this doesn't feel like it's going to turn into some big event, you know, or even a smaller event, but um, there were some interesting facets to the book that I enjoyed. So, for instance, in this Vampire Nation, there are different levels. Um, clearly, the vampires themselves consider themselves as elite, so they hire humans to do their dirty work, especially during the day, like literally do their dirty work, clean up the city, act as maids, garbage people, etc. Um, then they also have humans who volunteer themselves to become vampires to replace any vampire that might have been lost, you know, for whatever reason. And then there's a third group of humans that live in a part of this nation um, who are basically sport. They are prey so that vampires never forget that they are vampires, I guess you could say. There was also a, a fun notion of a support group for vampires, either vampires that have been recently turned or vampire. there's a vampire who was turned while he is old, so now he's forever going to be old. And then that's where we meet the Contessa. Is that her name? Yeah, the Contessa, yeah. And she's of an older world, and she she has an interesting thing that she says, uh, you think this cage, she means the city, was built to protect us? It was built to take whatever power we once had as vampires and give it all to one man, meaning Dracula. 
And her point is when she was, you know, um, a free range vampire, she's been around for, I don't know how many years, a, a bunch of centuries. She had, they all had power because most likely a vampire was the only vampire in a city. It wasn't a, a city of vampires. It was a vampire in a human city and pretty much, you know, she was her only one. So she wielded power, right? But she feels like she's giving up power by living in this vampire state, this vampire nation. Um, Dracula early on, earlier on has a line. There is a revolution afoot in the vampire kingdom and I am the only thing keeping it here and not in the world of humans. That right there, that feels like a line that could be developed into some kind of small event. And I wondered if a lot of this was because of everything going on with X-Men and Krakoa, right? Like they have their own nation for the longest time. Magneto had Genosha before. There's certainly Wakanda, Latveria, um, uh, Namor, and Atlantis. So I like that there's all these little mini nations spread out throughout the Marvel Universe. And then the end of the book um, does a, basically does its version of Bendis's Illuminati. And what we learn is that although Dracula has a council that is really for the public, he has a secret council. And that secret council is really the one that is kind of developing power and developing ideas. And it's made up of historical figures, some that I just, I don't know. And I also don't know how, I had to look it up. I don't know where reviewers uh, are getting this information from. You can look at the work, you can look at the artwork, and maybe suss out one or two of the characters, but some of the others are really obscure, and I thought, all right, there, maybe there's an interview somewhere that I missed. For instance, one of them is clearly Henry Kissinger, uh, one of them is Sun Tzu, uh, Machiavelli, and, and a few others, so... A little bit, um, you know, echoes of what's going on in Philadelphia over at Image Comics, right? Like this notion of vampires mixed with historical figures. I mean, it makes sense. I'm sure, I'm sure Philadelphia didn't come up with that idea. I mean, if vampires are supposed to be long lived, it only makes sense that they would bring certain historical figures along with them. So I'm not saying that it's stealing from that, but it felt like it was playing within the same same idea. Um, Philadelphia is, is a lot more nuanced with it and, uh, is actually doing something with it. I don't know what's going to become of this, uh, here in the Marvel universe. I really need to get back to Philadelphia too, because I, I really enjoyed that book. So yeah, Blade Vampire Nation. I, I, I don't regret reading it. Um, if it pops up on the app and you don't want to buy it, you know, that's probably the smart way to go about it. If, if any of this sounds interesting, or if you picked it up and haven't read it yet, maybe this will give you the, 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 the kick so that you can read it. The other book that I read, and I don't usually do this. I don't usually do a follow, follow up to a first issue. I, I usually focus on one shots and first issues or, maybe some, you know, a couple issues of a trade, but I did read the second issue of Star Trek from IDW. This is by Colin Kelly, Jackson Lansing. It has a new artist already here on the second issue, Oleg Chudikov, and then we have Lou Loveridge on colors, Clayton Cowles on letters, a cover by Ramon Rosanis, who was the artist for issue one. 
Um, what we learned in issue one is that Benjamin Sisko has returned to our galaxy and has been tasked uh, with a mission from the prophets to follow and find a god killer. And in this issue, that brings him to an old friend, and that would be Worf on Quonus. And in order to find information on where this god killer has traveled to and perhaps how he managed to gain powerful weapons that can, that can kill gods. That part of this is really enjoyable. You get to see what Worf has been up to since the end of Deep Space Nine, not to mention the Klingon Empire in general, the structure of their new government. We see Emperor Kales, uh, Chancellor Martok, we hear about the council. And the whole reason they go to the Klingon Empire is because they follow the killer's trail. And apparently, part of uh, uh, one of the elements in the trail can only be detected by a group of beings within the Empire who are more or less gods themselves, the Shapers of Sardakesh. They are so powerful that the Klingons didn't conquer them. They just basically allow them to live within their space and they don't bother with them. So, of course, uh, Kayless says, no, you can't see them. You're not going to get information. So Cisco's like, F it. I'm just going to do that. Along the way, he feels like his crew of the USS Theseus doesn't quite trust him just yet. Um, uh, eventually, they they start to... You can see those uh, that trust starting to be earned, especially in this issue with Data, where Cisco kind of keeps him, you know, a little little to the distance. And then there's a scene once they get to these shapers, where Cisco allows Data to be Data and realizes, yes, you know, he is a a uh, experienced crew member and he's going to get the job done, which is kind of great. Um, there were a couple things that I got lost in a few details that confused me here and there. Uh, when I read it a second time, it was a little clearer. Uh, so, so apparently these shapers might have given the killer a ship and a powerful weapon, and they don't realize what he's doing with it. So they do wind up giving Cisco some information, and that's where this issue ultimately ends. Now, we still haven't really seen what the ship can do just yet. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if they're holding back on that to until we get to like a, a, a much more higher point in the conflict. Um, and with this issue, we also get Worf back in Starfleet. And even though the artwork is by a different artist, it's very similar to issue one. It's a little softer at times. And um, I think I was more engaged in the first issue, probably because it was a first issue. But the second issue, um, it read just a little differently. So that's that's pretty much all I can say with it. But I'm in it. I do like this series. I'm going to continue reading. And it's weird. Oddly, this has become one of my most anticipated, anticipated reads here at the end of the year. So if you've read it, let me know. The other thing that I'm not really going to talk about too much here, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. Um, if you want to hear my thoughts on the new Golden Age one-shot by Jeff Johns and a whole bunch of different artists, I did talk about it to, to, uh, to, to a certain degree. Not a lot, but there is discussion about the new Golden Age on the CGS episode that was released today, December 14th, episode 1877. Brian and I read it, so we, we 
kind of, you know, talk about it a little bit. We don't necessarily dig into it. I, I give a few things here and there and some speculations. And I think I want to do an individual episode on this because if I if I start now, it's just going to take too long. It's, it's too long for one segment uh, or even a part of a segment here on uh, one of the digests. And I always, you know, my intention is to always do break break um, breakdown episodes on these kind of like monumental one shots. Um, I just need to catch up. So it is on my list to try to do. Hopefully I'll do that because I want to also read Stargirl and uh, the new Justice Society of America. So I'm in it. I'm in it. So again, go listen to CGS episode 1877 for thoughts on the new golden age. Let's wrap up this segment with my recommendations for the week of December 14th. As the intro clip, uh, as you heard in the intro clip, Danger Street, number one of 12, finally is releasing after uh, many months of uh, whatever the delay was for to rework it or, you know, make it make it um, so that they could give uh, Jorge Fornes some, you know, time to make sure that it, it'll come out in a decent amount of time uh, for $4.99. I am so looking forward to this, written by Tom King. Um, you know, as you know, I did the, the, uh, first issue special segments, the road to danger street segments, taking a look at each issue of first issue special, as well as some of the, um, stories that, that, uh, didn't quite come out with the title, but came out in other places because, you know, I am all for it. I want to read this. I can't wait. So I'll get this in my DCBS shipment. Oh, probably in a couple weeks, and uh, I'll finally be able to take a look at it. Also this week, Batman Spawn for $6.99 by Todd McFarlane and Greg Capullo. Those two characters meeting once again. We also have the Who's Who Omnibus Hardcover Volume 2 for $150. That is collecting Who's Who in the DC Universe 1 through 16, which was the loosely format version also, the update in 1993, which had two issues, as well as Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes 1 through 7, um, plus I think a few other things. From Legendary Comics, the Dune official movie graphic novel for $24.99 has finally been released. That was also delayed. Lila Sturges, uh, Drew Johnson. So uh, take a look at that. And then from Scholastic's graphics imprint, we have Captain America, the Ghost Army. You can get this in hardcover or soft, soft cover. Now it's for ages 8 through 12, grades 3 through 7. And it's by Alan Gratz with artwork by Brent Schoonover, who is a name you may remember from CGS. Um, in this thrilling historical adventure, 18-year-old Steve Rogers and his young sidekick Bucky Barnes are fighting in World War II when they encounter a threat like none they've ever seen, a ghost army. The dead of this war and wars past are coming back to life, impervious to bullets, flames, or anything else the Allies can throw at them. The armies rise from the ground in the night and seem to disappear without a trace. How can Cap and Buck fight something that's already dead? And just what does this mysterious and what does the mysterious Baron Mordo, sitting in his castle atop nearby Wondergore Mountain, have to do with this? Um, the only reason I knew about this was because of, you know, looking at previews every week or looking at, uh, 
you know, the new releases every week. And I thought, oh, this is great. Brent Schoonover. Great. Okay. Definitely want to give this a nod. Um, so check this out. This is uh, a, an original story, hardcover or softcover format, aimed at younger readers, but apparently there's also stuff in there for older readers as well in terms of probably like some Easter eggs and some name drops and things like that. So it's always good when they when these big companies try to branch out. DC does it a lot, you know. They have their, uh, what they used to call their Zoom and uh, DC Ink line, and now it's just sort of like a young reader's line, and now, you know, it'd be nice to see if Marvel does more of these. All right, there you go, your recommendations for the week of December 14th. So this segment is going to cover a little bit of news, real news, that does have a comic book connection that was presented to me by my by Eric from Longbox Review, my co-host on the uh, Legion Project podcast. And it, he brought it to my attention because it does it did happen in Pennsylvania. Uh, I certainly by no means want to I don't want this to come across that I'm making light of this or, you know, certainly it's a it's a real uh, it's a real tragedy. Um, so, you know, you if, if you don't want to listen to this, you can skip ahead to the Friday segment um, because it does involve violent crime. Uh, so I'll just, I mean, even the headline here pretty much gives it all away. Husband dismembered wife because she didn't support his dream of opening a comic book store unlike his mistress. So this happened in October, where this uh, woman was reported missing by her daughter, and initially um, the man was giving excuses like, you know, she probably went away on her own because she might have been unhappy in the marriage, but then, you know, then also says that the night before she disappeared, that uh, they may have had an argument or a conversation. He says that uh, they would hold hands on the couch uh, with his wife watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer together before bed. None of this was believed by the grand jury. It turns out he even accused her of having an affair. And it, it, it turns out that he was having an affair, an affair for six months. And one of the details that they say here in the article as kind of like a um, almost like a point of evidence is that he had a very large credit card debt due to his purchase and selling of thousands of dollars worth of comic books and even an alleged motive where the fact that he had found someone, his mistress, that he loved and who supported his dream of opening a comic book store with his brother while his wife did not. Uh, eventually, the man admitted, uh, confessed. He agreed to lead investigators to his wife's body, where they did retrieve some of her remains uh, near the Delaware River in Tinicum Township, PA. And the Bucks County District Attorney, his name is involved in this article. So, you know, very close to, well, not very close to where I live, but, you know, this, this portion of Pennsylvania. Um, I, I don't recognize the guy's name at all. You know, I don't, if he's someone who was purchasing comics, 
Uh, when it, was he one of those, um, quote unquote, retailers who maybe went around to different con conventions to sell his product? Or was he selling them out of his house and his home? Uh, there's a lot of retailers like that, that, you know, they don't have, re they don't have stores, but they go just basically to convention to convention. Some of the, some of them even have like diamond accounts and things like that. So anyway, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make this narrative that all of a sudden all these people are, you know, um, up to no good. So yeah, so that's it. That's, I just wanted to put that out there because I had not heard this story, but I thought it was odd that Eric had heard it and he's all the way across the other side of the country and I'm in Pennsylvania and didn't hear about this. Um, sometimes I wonder if algorithms, you know, when you're doing your, your Google searches and you're online and maybe it's the kind of thing that, you know, Eric looks up a lot of comic book things. So they throw this news his way, even though it's involved uh, here in Pennsylvania. But no, I had not heard this. And that headline was certainly uh, a grabber for someone who, you know, is is interested in comics. So there you go. Uh, a little bit of real world tragic news. And um, hopefully that family can uh, find some rest. The, the woman's family can find some rest uh, in all of this. So I have not followed up to see um, cause this was the initial report this week and I haven't followed up to see what else was going on, um, beyond this. So speaking of kind of like the timeline of events, I did actually see an article sometime in the past year or two about the man who used to run or own the Pittsburgh Comic Con, who was also accused or, or who also, um, uh, yeah, was accused of, of killing his wife, and he's currently in jail, and I believe we might have talked to him on CGS in the early days in our, our convention tour, and then this happened during some of our earliest years, and we were all, you know, like, shocked. Um, but I think just recently I saw a news article, kind of like an update of that, but I, I didn't research it out. So, yeah, just some, you know, some odd stories uh, that have some kind of comic connection, you know. And again, not trying to make light of it, um, but just wanted to bring it up here. So, there you go. Let's close this digest out with a little bit of, uh, you know, happier news. <laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, present this to you, the listeners, in case you'd be interested. This was um, sent to me uh, from Chuck Coletta of uh, Bowling Green State University, where their Department of Popular Culture and the Brown Popular Culture Library present the Spider-Man in Popular Culture Conference, September 29th and 30th, 2023. So this is a way to celebrate Spider-Man, one of the most iconic and universally recognized superheroes of all time, with a Spider-Man in Popular Culture Conference. Spider-Man is a complex, enigmatic, and tragically appealing crime fighter who has conquered all forms of mass media and pop culture 
Join us as we celebrate, discuss, and debate the cultural significance of Spider-Man and his impact upon comics, mass media, and our society at large. So this is a call for papers and presentations. The conference aims to examine Spider-Man and popular culture in all mediums and media. It is intended to serve as a space for academics, graduate students, comic industry professionals, retailers, and fans to engage in dialogue about topics related to Spider-Man in its many media forms, mediums, and cultural influence in popular culture and beyond. The scope of this conference is deliberately broad with the intention of highlighting the interdisciplinary nature and many different avenues of research possible related to Spider-Man in popular culture. So uh, possible topics might include, but are not limited to, textual analysis of graphic novels, storylines, other texts related to Spider-Man, in-depth analysis of of particular authors and artists, work related to Spider-Man, the development of supporting characters, villains, and themes within the Spider-Man mythos, Spider-Man in popular music, Spider-Man in film, television, and animation, the rise of Spider-Man-centric podcasts, and many, many more, including mass merchandising, uh, alternate heroes like Miles Morales, Ben Riley, Jessica Drew, video games, the role of diversity issues, uh, Spider-Man within the comics industry, uh, art and covers across the decades, and so, so many more. The conference welcomes individual proposals or preformed panels that address any or all of these themes as the conference seeks to provide a multitude of perspectives, academic presentations, and those from outside the academy are welcome. So you have to send a 300-word abstract describing your individual presentation, and submission should be sent uh, no later than Friday, March 31st, 2023. So I will post this link in the show notes, and I'm sure I'll share. I've I'm sure I'll share it on Twitter as well. I believe Adam from CGS did participate in a previous conference, perhaps on Batman. I think is what Chuck said. I don't have that in front of me right now. And um, they have done a number of these in the past, and I'm sure this one will go over uh, well uh, for 2023. So if you're interested in that, check out the link, because especially if you're in the area or uh, this is something that is right up your alley. I love that they include podcasting in there, right? I know Chuck is a fan of a lot of different podcasts. So uh, if you hadn't heard about this, you know, maybe you should give it a look-see. All right, that's it for this digest. If you have any feedback, Peter at thedailyrios.com or visit the website thedailyrios.com or the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on any of your favorite podcast catchers. Just give me some stars or whatever. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If you have a book club recommendation, let me know. And this has been The Daily Rios, episode 593. For Sunday, December 18th, 2022. Talk to you soon. One thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. <laughs>